Let's turn together in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're actually going to begin today in chapter 18. I, I read all of chapter 18 last week, but I want to overlap this week and start with 18 and then launch into 19. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and 19 are all centering around the fall of Babylon the Great. And there was, there was a historical empire, the Babylonian Empire, and its capital city was Babylon. But what the Apostle John is referencing here is not historical Babylon, but spiritual Babylon. It is the spirit of Babylon that has been behind every world empire. And there will be an ultimate an unprecedented manifestation of the spirit of Babylon during the end of days. This will be a city like the world has never seen, a global city with unprecedented, unprecedented luxury and an unprecedented standard of living. And it's going to seem invincible this society during the end of days that the Apostle John calls Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, is going to seem immortal, eternal. Every empire seems invincible. And yet, the Bible tells us in Revelation 18 that this seemingly invincible city, the capital city of the Antichrist, is going to fall suddenly. There's going to be a shockingly sudden destruction, right? And I said last Wednesday night during our Q&A that we are one EMP away from Revelation 18 being a reality. And so the Apostle John goes into great detail about the fall of this incredibly advanced city that is the epicenter of this advanced society, right? We are at the very pinnacle of human capacity. This is Babylon the Great, the root word Babel, where at the very beginning, humanity pooled their resources to prove what they could achieve when they collaborate. And God judged them for it and scattered them. And here we have a final expression of that same that same sinful desire to replace God with human ingenuity. And so we have Babylon's doom. Let me read, let's read together Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 20. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And then goes on, let's Go down to verse 24, the very last verse of chapter 18. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Now chapter 19, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. 
he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. There's lots of shouting in this passage. And they shouted, and they shouted again, and they cried out. So there's lots of large font, bold print in the passage that we just read. Babylon is going to fall. The complete and permanent destruction of this society that is centered around the Antichrist. This is not a recession or a depression. It's total destruction. Chapter 18 goes into great detail about the economic nature of this devastation. When you look back earlier in chapter 18, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. Why is it that the Apostle John goes into such great detail about the economy of Babylon the Great? In verse 23 of chapter 18, your merchants were the world's important people. He could have just said that Babylon had fallen. He could have just said that Babylon was devastated, but he goes into great detail. And I'm asking myself the question as a student of scripture, why is it that the Bible gives us these details about the economic nature of the collapse of this Babylonian society? The capital city of the Antichrist, which is the beating heart of this Antichrist culture that is global in nature. Your merchants were the world's important people. I thought of Jeff Bezos. I thought of Bill Gates, of Warren Buffett, of Mark Zuckerberg, of Elon Musk, of Rupert Murdoch, of George Soros. 
you have a relatively small percentage of the world that have the most influence. It's radically disproportionate influence. In many ways, the wealthiest 1% set the agenda for the other 99. The Antichrist will recruit the political elites and the titans of commerce, and they will pull their resources and their influence and create a one world government that is rooted in a global economy. And it all is fueled by the economy. You, they leverage the economy to implement their agenda. And the hard truth is that every human being is intrinsically greedy. I am greedy. You are greedy. Some of you are offended. And you say, you don't even know me, man. Before you tune out, before you disconnect, I make my prognosis of myself and of you, not based on personal observation, but based upon theology. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't have to know your story. I know you have a sinful nature. And so the greed that is going to be exploited to implement the agenda of the Antichrist. And this will work because it's working now, because most of us will sacrifice anything for not financial gain. The Antichrist will come to power based upon the promise of more. If you support me, I will give you more. And so we set aside our morals for the sake of more money. If you support me, this is how it's going to benefit you. More luxury and leisure, more comfort and convenience, more prosperity. And the false prophet and his minions will cloak this greed in Christianity. It will be a gospel of greed, a gospel of worldly wealth. Preachers will exploit the sinful nature and personally profit from baptizing greed and making prosperity the primary sign of blessing. And this is starting to hit close to home. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is one of the last, this is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was murdered. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. Greed will be the core value of the culture of the Antichrist, but this will come at a cost. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I don't care what the televangelist has told you. I don't care what the TV preacher says. I care what the Bible says. I care what Jesus says. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So as kingdom people, why would we pray for something that Jesus says will damage our faith? Why would we pray for something that Jesus says will put our salvation in jeopardy? The Antichrist will have a platoon of religious leaders that will preach the gospel of greed and they will convert the masses. 
joined together by their sinful natures, creating the apostate church, the harlot church that has sold herself for money. It's already happening. This is not hypothetical. There will be an unprecedented manifestation of this during the end of days, but based upon my observations of the contemporary church, we are in the midst of the end of days. It's because it's already happening, because there are huge churches based upon the foundation of greed. The primary motivator for many churches is the promise of prosperity. Joel Olstein is the poster boy for this kind of repentance-free Christianity. Kenneth Copeland is another poster boy for this kind of greedy Christianity. Benny Hinn is another poster boy for this get-rich religion. The pastors that surrounded Trump and prophesied in his favor are examples of false prophets that pander to politicians and pursue power at all costs. False prophets have private jets. Let me just say this, right? And it's going to be blatant and it's going to be offensive. Every preacher that purchases a private jet is a false prophet, period. Every preacher that has multiple mansions is a false prophet, period. It's bizarre how thousands of people literally buy into this by sacrificially giving to support charlatans that have outrageously extravagant lifestyles. This is not theoretical. This is happening right now. This gospel that is rooted not in the spirit, but in the sinful nature, exploiting the intrinsic greed rather than mortifying it through the spirit. The number one is issue in almost every election is the economy. It's obviously not morality, obviously. When that becomes the number one issue in the church, we have lost our way. When the stock market has a, has a greater impact on our attitudes than the scriptures, when saving is, is a greater value than giving, when we are willing to put our morals aside for the sake of our money, and the antichrist and the false prophet will tap into this part of, us, our, of our sinful nature in an unprecedented way. It's happening right now. This is not theoretical. This is not theological. This is real time. And it's so seductive where the enemy promises us that we can have it all. You can worship God and pursue the North American dream. You can worship God and do all of these other things. And it's the same enemy that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He tempted Jesus with physical wealth, with physical power, with worldly authority. And Jesus refused by quoting the word of God. And we have to be so, we have to be so saturated in scripture, so rooted in scripture that we immediately can detect the counterfeit, right? Because there's going to be unprecedented deception during the end of days. And it's happening right now. People are being deceived. And the most dangerous lie is partially true. It's not a denial of truth, it's a twisting of truth. It's a dilution of truth. 
we now shift gears and see a radical juxtaposition between two scenes. The shocking contrast between what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven. So in 1820, check this out. We have this detailed description of the devastation of Babylon, right? It's going to be a total devastation. I mean, it is horrific what's going to happen it, it, because this, this city is going to be at the very pinnacle of human civilization. And its fall will be great because of how high it has climbed. And so it's going to be a sudden descent and a shattering. And what happens here though in verse 20, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and, and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And then we go to verse, to chapter 19. And we have this explosion of heavenly worship. Look at the first part of chapter 19. After this, after what? After they had just witnessed the devastation of Babylon the Great. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory. And he goes on. There's a fourfold hallelujah here. This is the only time the word hallelujah is found in the New Testament, and they are all stacked up right here in the first six verses of chapter 19. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And they're not just whispering it. They're looking over the devastation of what was Babylon, the great, and they're shouting it. Hallelujah. These two scenes don't seem to go together. And I don't want us to miss this. I want us to camp out and dissect the discomfort here. I want us to pause and wrestle with what's happening because it's so blatant in these passages here. The, the first part of chapter 19 contains an eruption of heavenly worship in response to what God did to Babylon the Great, in response to the total and permanent destruction of this luxurious society. We see in the first part of chapter 19 a full-on, undiluted, blatant, flagrant, unrestrained worship service in heaven with the word hallelujah being shouted multiple times. Hallelujah is a very interesting word. It's the only word that is pronounced the same in every language. It's the transliteration of the Hebrew. Hallelujah, let us praise the Lord. Heaven is rejoicing, not at the destruction of Babylon, but at the justice of God. And I want us to see this in the same way that we would rejoice at the, at the sentencing, at the appropriate sentencing of a horrible criminal. Some say this, because God is love, he will never judge, but that is not true. That is simply not biblical. The Bible is full of God's judgments, mostly directed at his people. However, in the end of days, he will pour out his judgment on those that have persecuted and tortured and slaughtered his people. We go back to chapter 17, verse 6. I saw that the woman, this is Babylon the Great, 
the seductive prostitute. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And then we go to 1824. In, in her, in this city, was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, all who have been slaughtered on the earth. I tried to think a way to illustrate this for us, how all of heaven, there's this flagrant, there's this blatant worship that's happening, not in response to the destruction, but in response to the justice. I thought about the Nazis and the Holocaust. What if Hitler, what if Hitler and his inner circle had survived? What if they were prosecuted? And some, many were prosecuted after the war in the Nuremberg trials. But what if Hitler was prosecuted and the evidence presented of, of his horrific crimes against humanity? The pictures of the concentration camps, the pictures of the mass graves of men, women, and children, the thousands of eyewitness testimonies coming from Holocaust survivors. What if after all of this, weeks of the prosecution presenting its case against Adolf Hitler, what if after all of this, the judge came back and said, I am a good and kind judge. I am, I am a graceful and loving judge. Therefore, I'm going to let you go. I hope this demonstration of love will cause you to change your ways and spend the rest of your life making amends for your mistakes. How many of us would applaud this judge? How many of us would celebrate his mercy? How many of us would give him a standing ovation in the courtroom and say, look at how kind that judge is. Look at how merciful that judge is. No, no, we would have the opposite reaction. We would be revolted at this judge for his injustice. We would demand justice. And I want us to see this here because we have this blatant, undeniable response of worship to what God is doing on the earth in judging Babylon the Great for slaughtering thousands of Christians for celebrating the slaughter of the saints. God is the ultimate judge. He is the only perfect judge. He cannot let sin slide because of his nature, because he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. And this is the heart of the gospel. How can God be perfectly just, meaning he has to prosecute sin, and perfectly loving? And the answer is the cross. The cross was the ultimate demonstration of his justice and his love. The cross, Jesus, is how God can be perfectly just and perfectly loving. It hopefully helps us to understand the fourfold hallelujah, that they're not rejoicing at the destruction, they're rejoicing at the justice the ultimate vindication that doesn't come from our retaliation. It comes from God. And then he moves in chapter 19 here into this 
incredible reference to a feast says here in verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Listen, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. The angel really wants the apostle John to not miss this part. And he gives another apocalyptic beatitude. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, and he added, these are the true words of God. This is the feast to end all feasts. In the Old Testament, God gave his people regular times of feasting. Seven feasts that were observed in ancient Israel. And so feasting was a way of worshiping, but the Old Testament and the feasting, and now the New Testament, the New Covenant version of those Old Testament feasts is the Lord's Supper, right? All of that, it, all of that, they're just foreshadowing of the feast to end all feasts, the party to end all parties, the celebration to end all celebrations is when Jesus returns and consummates the kingdom. I want to read this part straight from this commentary. I rarely do this, but I thought it was so well articulated that I wanna just read this section directly to you because it does such an incredible job of helping us connect the dots when it comes to the church being called the bride of Christ and the return of Christ as the consummation of this spiritual relationship. So I want you to lean in. I really, I think for you, light bulbs are going to start going off in your spirit. There were three steps in getting married. There was an engagement, or more technically, a betrothal, preparation for the wedding, and the wedding supper itself. It began with the betrothal ceremony. The prospective groom would leave his father's house and travel, accompanied by his best man, to the prospective bride's house. There, the groom would finalize arrangements with the bride's father, in particular, settling on the purchase price. In that day, a woman was bought with the price. As soon as the groom paid the purchase price, the marriage technically went into effect. The man and the woman were legally husband and wife, although they would not live together for some time. She was declared to be consecrated to the groom, set apart exclusively for him. A new covenant was established between them, sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction was pronounced. This cup is a new covenant. Then the groom would leave the bride's house and return to his father's house. He would be away from her for roughly 12 months. During the period of separation, the groom would prepare a room for the bride in his father's house. And during the separation period, the bride would prepare herself for the wedding. Now, although they did not see each other during this time, and although they did not have sexual intercourse, they were legally and spiritually bound to each other. So binding was this betrothal agreement, this covenant, that if the man died during the betrothal period, the woman was considered a widow. To break, to break the betrothal agreement was the same as a divorce. 
At the end of the betrothal period, the bridegroom, dressed in festive attire and accompanied by his best man and friends, would make his way back to the bride's house. Although everyone had a rough idea of when the groom would come, they did not know the exact day or hour. Usually, to add to the element of surprise, he would arrive around midnight. His arrival would be preceded by the shout, here is the bridegroom, come out, come out to meet him. Then with great joy, the bride, veiled and accompanied by her maidens who were carrying lamps, would come out to join the groom and his attendants. Then the wedding feast itself would begin. I told you, lights are going off in your spirit as you begin to connect the dots, those biblical dots that paint a beautiful picture of God's plan of redemption. This is the heart of Christianity. Not duty, but delight. Not legalism, but love. This has always been God's heart from the very beginning. Why did he ever create Adam and Eve to begin with? God knew what they would do, and yet he created them anyway. God knew that the sons of Adam would eventually torture and murder his son, and yet he created them anyway. What motivated the creation of something that would lead to such heartache for God? It's nothing but the father heart of God. It's nothing but divine love is the only explanation for our existence. This has always been the heart of God, to walk in the garden with his creation. God, through his prophets in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in Ezekiel chapter 16, he compared his people to a bride. That intimate relationship that God uses marriage as a metaphor for the way he wants to relate to us. Not a military chain of command where God is the commander in chief, God is the general and I am the private. Not, not primarily a, a king and servant relationship, not primarily an employee employer relationship, no. He uses marriage as a message of how he wants to primarily relate to humanity. In Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the closest of human relationships between a husband and a wife is what God uses to illustrate how he wants to relate to us. This is the heart of Christianity. God is not after our profession of faith. God is not impressed with our statements of faith. God is not impressed with our theology. <clears throat> In Revelation 2.4, Jesus rebukes a church. And it's the church in Ephesus that was incredibly theologically orthodox, and they had excellent programming, 
But Jesus says to them, yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You have forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do you remember when, if those of you that are married, those of you that are engaged, do you remember when you first met that person? Do you remember how that person consumed your waking thoughts? How that person was, was driving your behavior? How you planned your life around that person? But then the longer that we're married, the less, the more it, at risk we are of losing that love, of letting that love grow cold. And the same thing is true spiritually. The greatest command in the Bible is not obey or else. The greatest command is not obey. The greatest command in the Bible is love. In Matthew chapter 22, Someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? If you could summarize the entire Old Testament into one commandment, and if in keeping that one commandment, you would fulfill the rest. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Love God with an undivided heart. And so that's the challenge today, to prepare, to prepare for the return of the groom by returning to our first love through repenting of our spiritual apathy. When the groom is delayed and we no longer think much about the wedding, we no longer, it's no longer even a part of our planning where we've put the plans away in the basement and we no longer think he's coming back. We no longer think the wedding is going to happen. And so this wedding becomes a fantasy. And we live as if we're not married. We've already been betrothed. Those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus have already been betrothed to the groom. He has paid the purchase price. It's what 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body and to repent and return to our first love. So I'll pray today that God would search our hearts, that God would test our thoughts and see if there be any offensive way in us. See how far we've drifted off course, how far that we've been tainted by the gospel of greed, how much we've been tainted by the culture polluted by the society that we live in and to rededicate ourselves to Jesus and be faithful to him, be loyal to him no matter what. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.